Welcome to Good Revenue, where we discuss monetization, go-to-market, and revenue growth. I'm your host, Nitha Bidway. We're here to discuss what we can do to influence more effectively, improve profitability, and sustainably grow revenue while delivering more value to customers over time. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Good Revenue. We're here today with Baljeet Singh. He has been a product executive at Google, Twitter, Livongo Health, as well as YouTube, and a first tour at Google earlier in his career. And I'm thrilled to have him because his expertise spans consumer and enterprise, from product strategy to building out teams, and my personal favorite, monetization. So welcome, Baljeet. Thanks for having me, Ita. It's glad to be here. I am so excited. As I warned you, I have uh, lots of questions and I'm looking forward <laughs> to nerding out. So you've been warned again. <laughs> I'm excited. So you have an incredible track record. I mean, you have built very successful product organizations in all sorts of different companies and environments. So I'll just start with a, a small but big question, which is what are some of the most important lessons that you've learned from that breadth of experience? Yeah, there's a bunch to be, to learn. Um, I will try to keep it concise for the purposes of uh, the audience here. But you know, I think there's a few that come to mind. First, being around stage and context matters. You know, I think what's interesting is when you hop around from one thing to the next, you're brought in as a leader often because they're looking at some prior experience you've had, and they, they're thinking to themselves, "Oh, we need that in this organization," and and this person really filled that hole and. Hopefully, you can apply some of those learnings here. Um, you know, maybe that's scalability, maybe that's um, some domain expertise, whatever it might be. And so you're brought into these organizations to carry that out, but you really have to think about the stage and the context when you do that. Like I, I went from YouTube to Twitter because largely for that reason, they wanted to build out video on Twitter. There was no native video on Twitter at the time, and they wanted to have someone from YouTube come in and effectively show them how it's done, right? And and I started doing that and I was literally kind of taking things one for one, literally, you know, how the playbook from YouTube and, and you realize quickly, like that you can't just apply the exact same. You got to think about the stage and the context. What's, you know, how are you people using Twitter? How is that different from YouTube? It's much more of a, you know, a quick snippet of information. It's much more of a, a chronological consumption of content. And so these types of things matter when you're thinking about how to bring video on a Twitter. So, you really have to think about that. And it's an earlier stage organization. There's fewer resources, there's um, less you can do. And so you got to, you know, think about prioritization very differently. And so it got to be so much to the point though, that like in my early few months, I remember one of the designers put together a, a mock of what they thought I wanted because I'd been asking for this one thing over and over. And they were totally trolling and pranking me because they put a YouTube logo at the top of the screenshot and it was for Twitter. And so it was like, it was a great wake up call to me to be like, Hey, okay, I really got to think about stage and context here. That's the first one. I think the other big one is around metrics. Like I'm a huge data nerd. I do believe a lot in the data. I guess I got that from my Google days and having a single North star metric, I think is hugely clarifying for all organizations at your YouTube early days. We had, a uh, views as the sort of North star metric when I first got there. And over the course of the years I was there, we pivoted that from views to watch time. And it was a great shift because it was, it meant that people were now um, optimizing and had an objective function 
for creating higher quality sessions with our users. And if you think about it, a view it could be totally gamified. You could put something in a thumbnail that has nothing to do with what the actual video is. People will click on and they'll drop off. And so those aren't those aren't high quality sessions in any way. And so changing that orientation and that objective function to being watch time meant that um, we were we were optimizing for good quality experiences. And that meant that like how we made investment decisions was was organized around that, as well as our algorithms and you know the sort of the engines that power YouTube were now optimizing for this new metric. So the main point is having a, a, a clear North Star metric really helps the entire organization in, in, in tough decisions and, and allows for a lot of bottoms up empowerment where people can make their own decisions in silos, knowing that there's this kind of thing that everyone is uh, marching towards. And then the last one, I think a big lesson uh, I've learned is around having product values. You know, I think a lot of people will talk about cultural values, corporate values, like what, what does the organization stand for? But not as many organizations talk about what does their product stand for? What are the, what are the, what are the values and kind of the culture of the product? What stands out about the product? Uh, there's a product manager I used to work with called Todd Jackson. He talks a little bit about this and, and when, he, when he used to work on Gmail. And he used to say that you know Google at the time in 2004, 2005 was known for being simple and fast and powerful. And those were like the values of Google. And so when they launched Gmail and every launch they had on Gmail, it would be, how are we reinforcing those values and kind of doubling down on those values? And I, I've applied this lesson. I think it, it really is powerful way to think about, especially at a startup, how are you gonna stand out? What's gonna be different? There's often an incumbent and so you need to have something that's very unique, not in like the feature set, but in, again, the attributes of it. Like how, what does it stand for? What are the adjectives you use to describe it? And so when I was at Envoy, it was a breath analyzer that texted if you're in a fat burning state. And so effectively your com- competition is the scale, like a, a weight scale. Hmm. And so a lot of times we talked about how Envoy should stand for no shame, no judgment, unlike the scale. No one is going to be looking at the numbers and the outputs of Envoy and saying, oh my God, I can't believe you blew a 3.0 or whatever. That's the best thing about it is that there's there's literally no judgment you can cast. Everyone can have a similar score. It's very normalizing. And so main point is thinking hard about kind of the product values, what your what your product stands for um, and how it can how it can be differentiated and documenting those, codifying those. And then upon every release, checking yourself and saying, are you actually you know, reinforcing those values. And when you make prioritization decisions, are you investing the things that uh, reinforce those values? There's so much great insight in that and in all three of those. And I'm curious, maybe the last one first, when you say product values, what I also hear is it's the other side, or maybe it's a corollary to the positioning of that product and the context is that is that fair to say because part of what i like about how you're characterizing it is you're talking about the competitive alternatives not just another venture funded company or another you know investor backed enterprise so like yeah is is that how you see it too that it's it's a it relates back to the positioning yeah there's definitely some correlation i would imagine i would hope and expect the product values would be reiterated on the you know the website and the positioning statements and and even the pitch text and everything but it's it is something just you know that that may be a little less tangible. It's not a it's not again it's not a feature. It's, so that's that's where it could be different because a lot of times people talk about competitive advantages like oh we have this capability and you don't have that and that's not right. I think it's different. This is sort of more of a horizontal 
again, just like your corporate values, right? Or, you know, it's not, it's, it's like how you feel when you go to work, right? How do you yeah. feel when you use the product? How does it, what does the user feel? What do you want them to feel? And yeah, how is that different than alternatives that are out there, right? Yeah. And it's an important layer, I think, to differentiate on, because I think you're right. I'm not sure that that many product leaders I can think of have necessarily thought about that. So I think that's interesting. Yeah. The other thing that I think is interesting is definitely agree with you about the importance of data, metrics, KPIs. What was interesting in your example is it sounds like you periodically were shifting metrics too, that there yeah. was a consistent yeah. North Star. So how do you think about when the metrics need to evolve? Yeah. I mean, so early stage startups, you know, I think you got to, it probably will evolve, but the most important thing is just to pick one, right. And like, just have everyone marching toward be be pretty confident. And if you're starting to see areas where you want to make a big investment in something and it's not supporting this product, this key metric, that's a good forcing function to say, Hey, do we have the right metric? Um, because everyone's saying we have to be investing in this thing. Or there's just like macro factors evolving, or you didn't, you didn't, maybe you didn't think through what optimizing for this metric could turn out to be in sort of an extreme state. Again, like views at YouTube, right? It was, I, I don't think people would have thought early on that people were going to be doing this thumbnail gaming, that users were going to be thumbnail gaming and like taking advantage of it and abusing that, right? And taking it to an extreme. And so even watch time started to show its limitations when I was there, and it's definitely showing its limitations now where not all watch time is created equal. Like you right. don't, the stuff that's like purely entertainment, maybe mind numbing, you know, like and passive versus stuff that might be more educational or, or there's stuff that's truthful and not truthful as we were seeing in today's politics. And like, you know, do you, do you want to optimize for maybe what's called like nutritional watch time, right? Where, where you know that it's actually really positive and moving people's sort of lives forward in some way. So I think there's macro factors. There's an internal decisions that start to might might put pressure on this metric, but honestly, like very, I'm just surprised at how few orgs have even this. Like most of the times, you'll go to a startup or you know some relatives, and they'll just say revenue is the metric that they optimize for. And I I just struggle with that a lot because like you can achieve revenue so many different ways, right? And it doesn't actually help make many clarifying decisions. And ideally, this metric should be somewhere mid funnel. Like not, you know, number of customers or leads or whatever, and, and not all the way down to the point of like retention and re-engagement, but somewhere in the middle that indicates that users are getting value out of your product and that there ideally is correlation to retention. Like if you're driving this number up, it will lead to strong retention or lead to strong revenue. I was talking to a company the other day that's looking at, um, transcribing dictations for physicians and we were talking about you know something along the lines of like this conversation was a successful high quality conversation that got recorded that can be you know and then and, and the doctor had a good experience around that some way to kind of quantify that because that's going to be a leading indicator of like that doctor's going to come back want to record more conversations and it's going to mean that they're going to get more revenue because more doctors are you know are having great experiences and it helps clarify which segments should they go after? Like that's the other big thing with this metric is like it's a go-to-market metric too. Of like, where am I likely to grow this number the most? Is it by going across all specializations and physicians, or is it by going really deep within oncology? I'm just making it up. Um, and you could just you could kind of quantify the market around this particular metric, 
and it helps your sales team, it helps your product team, it helps your marketing team. Yeah, there's so much in that. And that leads in nicely, I think, to um, to monetization, which is something I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I think is so interesting is I think a lot of companies, whether they're startups, and I even think larger or, you know, um, non-investor-backed companies have the same challenge of really fine-tuning the business model and getting that right. Obviously, yeah. in a venture-funded environment, you can defer some of that decision-making. And my personal sense of it from the work that I've done is that people leave that question, those important questions till too late. And then as they're trying to right-size this business model, that's when they realize, look, our CAC is insane. We never got to lifetime value. We actually didn't know our segments. Like All these things emerge over time. But I do take your point that if you are focusing on the wrong revenue metrics, or maybe those metrics too early for the business, like that can also cause real problems. So yeah. how do you think about this broadly? Like, do you have any recommendations for how a, whether it's a founder or whether it's, you know, just again, a, a regular company, how should someone think about monetization and really testing the business model to get to something that enables you to deliver value, but more than that, so that your target customer is actually getting the value that they want and that they're willing to pay you for? You're absolutely right. And I, you know, I know this is what you, I think it's like an important tenant of this podcast in general. And I, and I, one of the reasons I was excited to join you because I think it's, it's very critical that product and marketing and sales are kind of like you're doing this together. Right. And like, yeah. you know, a lot of times I've seen founders say like, okay, we're just going to build this amazing product and the go to market kind of sells muscle. We'll get developed later. And if it's a good product, doesn't matter. Like it's yeah. gonna, it'll, 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 it's a solvable problem. Is the sort of general hypo assumption a lot of folks will make, and the reality is, like, you can have an amazing product, but it might not be a monetizable product, and it's just a difference. Like, can you know, I think there's also like something to be said about looking at the usage of the product and the willingness to pay for the product, like early on. Like, I think you know, people might ooh and ah over a product. But when you put them to the test and say, would you pay for it? Would you, you know, how much would you pay for it? Does that cover your costs? <laughs> like, um, right. and then also like how often are they using it or would they use it? I have an issue a lot of times when people will say like, oh, our DAUs, our DAOs are like meh, but our, you know, our monthly active users are great. Right. Like, and it's like, no, no, that's not, that's not a path to like a big business <laughs> um, in some way. And you've got to really, I mean, I, I think you can, I think you can convince me that if you have weekly active users, even though your dials are low, it's okay. And that's true. Like DoorDash, you know, there's certain use cases where it's like, you only really need to use it once a week and that's fine, but you really need to have regular engagement or a high willingness to pay for this to be something that you can build a business around. So to answer your question that, you know, more directly, I think you've got to be bringing this in, these conversations in really early into your product development cycles and often, um, and have good checkpoints. You know, I think when we were, when I was at YouTube and we were building the skippable pre-roll that you now see across all of YouTube today, we call it TrueView. That whole development process was tightly coupled with how are we going to charge for this? And it was just like hand in hand, like it, and a lot of what we were iterating with before we launched was what is that charge point and like, how should we charge? And so we made the decision that we're going to charge on a cost per engaged view basis, which means the user 
has told us in some way that they want to watch this ad. And effectively, we interpreted that as they made it to the end of the ad, or I think it was like 15 seconds, whichever one came first. So they stuck around long enough that it was an indicator to us that they wanted to watch that ad. And so we would only charge advertisers if users made it to that point, the end of the ad or 15 seconds. And so again, that's how we designed the product. And it was like, and we took that to salespeople, we took that to advertisers, and we tried to get to a point where everyone was kind of bought in and, and aligned. And then only, you know, did we launch. And again, I think that there's, you know, there's, we have, I have examples of this, like even with Google Maps, when I was working on Maps Enterprise, and we were trying to come up with a whole solution for ride-sharing customers. We thought a lot about what are the features and functionality that go into this. You know, what does a ride-sharing customer need? But also, like, how do they run their business? What's their PL look like? And what how would they like us to charge them? Previously, we were charging them on a cost for API call. And the reality of that was that their bill to Google was super volatile because it was all dependent on how they were integrated with us as opposed to what you'd want, which is like their revenue goes like this, their costs to Google, like, you know, are correlated. And so we changed it. We, when we launched this new ride sharing solution, we changed the charging model to be on a cost per trip basis, which is so every time they have a trip, they get revenue from their customers. They give us a little piece of that. And so again, we designed those two things hand in hand, the product and kind of the business model alongside that makes a lot of sense to me. And I really, I like that it sounds like you very much were focused on aligned incentives so that everyone from the end customer to your customer to your business model were all succeeding. I think that, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that you hit it head to head on is better, a good way of saying it, especially YouTube and yeah, and in Maps Enterprise. In the YouTube model, it was the users get a less intrusive format. Advertisers only pay for engaged views. You know, historically, advertisers would pay for impressions whether or not they anyone cared watched it and then the content creators were getting more revenue on a per unit basis and so it was uh it was a win-win-win for all around so to your point um census aligned same with the enterprise where maps enterprise where we were totally aligned with their pnl now yeah i think that's a good lesson i think it's a good lesson there one of the questions too that comes out of that is um is around product market fit and i know you have a lot of passion for this this yeah. topic. This is always like a hot topic in the, in the wider ecosystem. Um, and one of the things, one of the secrets I personally think no one tells you is that you don't just find product market fit once, throw a party and like run away to join the circus, right? Like yeah. it's a it's a process that evolves as your product evolves, as customers evolve, maybe as the market changes, competitors get better, all, all the things. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about like, how do you think about product market fit? And from a product perspective, like what do you need to do if you suspect that uh, that, that alignment isn't there anymore? Yeah. And just taking a step back on this one for a minute, because I think product market fit is so different depending on industry and product type and everything. You know, I sure. think consumer is very, very different than enterprise yep. in that regard. Consumer in some ways, I'd argue it's actually a little bit easier because you're just you're selling you got basically one stakeholder, it's your consumer, and they are the buyer effectively, you know, unless it's gonna add advertiser subsidize. But you know, meanwhile, enterprise has some complexities because you've got all these different stakeholders. The buyer might be different than your end users. And so, you know, how are you appealing? Do you have, in some cases, you have to have product market fit with both kind of right. stakeholder. Right. And then the, 
And then in health tech, because I've spent a lot of time in health tech, yeah, you often have this double product market fit where there is an entity that is buying this on behalf of another set of users. So in the case of Livongo Envoy, we sold to employers who provided this as a benefit to their employees. And so you've got to sell to the head of HR at the company, head of benefits, and then you and then you got to go convert all the employees. And so, and that can be really tough on on a product organization having to think about those two and saying which one do I optimize for. I still stand by the fact that you, know, you should you should chase your end users if they're happy. They'll put enough pressure on kind of the other stakeholders in theory to make the purchasing decisions. But what it comes down to, like product market fit and assessing whether you're on the right track. And I do think a lot of it comes back to the numbers and looking at those curves. I mean, I think we all want to be in those teams and organizations where it's that kind of hockey stick growth. And clearly to me, if it has that hockey stick growth, you've hit PMF. Like if there's, right. if they're nonlinear acceleration in your charts, uh, in a compressed period of time and having a miss on product market fit or having to revisit to me is when you're seeing kind of much more of a flat growth or no growth. And I think a lot of times folks will try to convince themselves, oh, we're just waiting for this one thing. Once we turn on sales, once we turn on marketing, we'll see. But a lot of times what happens is it's kind of trudging along. You add a bunch of sales efforts and now your margins eroding and and you're still not seeing that growth. And I, I think those are all big wake up moments. It's really comes down to being the difference between a nice to have product and a must to have product. And often that difference is so tiny. Like you don't even realize it. You might even spend years of your life building something that doesn't have the impact on the world. Like you owe it to yourself, to be honest. And this also comes back to what I was talking about earlier of like DAOs versus WOWs versus MAOs. But just like taking a pulse on your customers on a regular basis and saying, do you love this product? Are you willing to refer it to others? How much are you willing to pay for it? And are we exceeding or meeting your expectations of, of what we promised in the beginning? You know, the other thing I'd say about product market fit is that like people often think of it as the top line number again, sort of customers and revenue in the door. But really you gotta look at sort of the bottom of the funnel when it comes to product market fit. Like, are you retaining those users? I worked at Twitter for a few years and people used to say Twitter has a user growth problem, right? It's, they don't have as many users as, as Meta and Facebook. They don't have as many users as YouTube. It's not true. Twitter had like a bill, over a billion users touching, interacting with this product every year, at least when I was there. And we had a- <laughs> Yeah, we won't use the modern day numbers because who knows? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, totally. And notice I still call it Twitter. Um, the, but they use the, but but the, they have a leaky bucket problem, right? It's like just turning through hundreds of millions of users, whether they actually like even logged in, or even if they were just like seeing an embedded tweet, you know, those are users of Twitter in some way but we weren't doing a great job of like retaining those users or converting those users just to, you know, deeper engagement sessions. And I think it's an important thing to figure out what is your assessment of the product market fit. And it should ideally be much further down the funnel and an indicator that someone is like super happy with their experience with the product. 
that's such a smart point, especially on retention, because I think you're right. I think a lot of companies really discount that. And maybe, you know, the last 18 months have been harder, obviously, for most businesses. So it feels like um, there's a renewed interest in it. But I also sometimes feel like it's just lip service. And we're not really looking at our choices all the way through the funnel to kind of see if that, you know, are we making the right choices or not? Yep, 100%. One thing too, I think that you know you've seen in your career, and I, I'm observing it too, is that in many companies, whether they're startups or maybe even their you know their later mm-hmm. stage, but the founder is still the CEO or just very close to the business. And my observation is there's a lot of tension oftentimes between that chief product officer and the founder vision, you know, that idea of what the company could or should be. And so, yeah. wh- how do you think about this? from both a strategic perspective and a business perspective. Yeah, this is a good one. Um, definitely seen it through various sort of touch points, whether I've been working at a, a startup, whether I've been um, advising a startup, or even in the case of like kind of interviewing with different CPO type roles and talking to recruiters and everything, right? And it, you know, I think stage, again, really, really matters here. Definitely early on, a founder or two founders, three founders, you know, there's no need for a CPO or even like a really exact level kind of product lead. It will, they will butt heads with the founders. And, uh, you know, I think what they really need is like likely some operational excellence mm-hmm. a lot of time, you know, a really glorified kind of program manager to keep the trains running, execute, uh, ship, you know, make, make sure the, everything's on time and clearing obstacles, that kind of stuff. Cause a lot of times they're just operating at an altitude that is not low enough that what, what the organization needs. But so once you get into series B in my experience is when they, you could start to think about like a head of product or a, you know, CPO type. And, but even then it can be very tricky. Like the founders need to be okay with effectively someone else raising their baby, shaping their product. Right. Like, I think the analogy of like kids here is really interesting. Like if you're a founder, you know, I would ask you like, are you comfortable with someone babysitting your kid for a little while for a couple hours? Would you be comfortable with like a nanny or a school or maybe a boarding school? Like where do you draw the line? Like of where you're, you know, okay, letting go. And to me, like the, the right balance ideally is like a founder who is comfortable sort of on a weekly basis in some way, like basically shipping their kid off to school for a week. And then on the, on the weekends, they get to, you know, hang out. Right. And like, so the idea being let the CPO have enough agency to influence a lot of the direction on a day-to-day basis, but clearly there needs to be kind of touch points back with the founders because you don't want to get too far awry or off course of what they had envisioned. And the, the, you know, the founder needs to be able to articulate what their vision is and, needs to be able to like codify it in some way so that, you know, there can be some level of agency and autonomy, but you know, it's also a a big thing when you look for the CPO or the head of product, got really honest about what they're good at and whether that's what the organization needs, but also they need to be somewhat comfortable with change and fewer resources and those types of things. And like, yeah, I think I learned early on going from places like Google and Twitter to Livongo, you got to be okay with some level of flux and changes in direction. Um, but I think then the pressure becomes back on this, on the CO too, like, how are we communicating? How are we collaborating? How are we bringing in the team on these changes? Cause just like, you know, obviously mandating them on a 
weekly basis without much context isn't going to lead to much success at all. You know, I think there's different founders out there, right? That come, everyone talks about this all the time, zero to one, one to a hundred and so on. And so, you know, I think, I think boards and VCs need to be much more honest about making those changes too. Like, is this, is this the founder or CEO we need right now versus the one, you know, that we're going to need. And once we get to a certain stage milestone, um, we hit 10 million in revenue. Like, is, it, is this the same person or we need someone new? And I think more often than not, all of those decisions are too late for a lot of good reasons. But, um, the other thing I'd say is like, I've rarely, I've, I've never seen a be super successful when it's like a founder who's had to learn all these functions along the way, sales, marketing, operations, products, while also running the business and building a leadership team. Or, you know, when there's two co-founders and one of them is basically product and edge and the other one's kind of business. If there's a product and edge co-founder and you bring in like a head of product, like you just not as much space in the room, right? You need, you kind of need, and, but meanwhile, if there's like one CEO co-founder and you're bringing a head of product, I think it could work a little better. So yeah, I think there's, it's all dependent on the type of CEO co-founder stage and just being really honest with how willing the founder is to let go of some of this and how much they should be letting go because maybe there's someone else who's going to be better at some parts of this, as well as the person coming in being comfortable with some change, being comfortable with having that regular check-in and establishing kind of a shared vision together. That makes sense. Shifting gears just a little bit, I know that you have a number of frameworks that have helped you not chase low-hanging fruit. And uh, in my humble opinion, I think this is a like holy grail problem for a lot, a lot of organizations. Could you take us through some of this and like I think yeah. I think what a lot of companies want to know, and even you know, just employees. I think I think stakeholders want to know too. Like, how do we build more important things, and at the yeah. same time, like, how do we take calculated risks in a way that makes sense? Yeah, I love this one because it's, it's just such a common phenomenon. Like a lot of early stage companies I've talked to, advised, worked at, well, they would say like a hundred percent of them have this problem of low hanging fruit phenomena. And I get it. I totally understand how organizations end up this way. You know, when you're investing in low hanging fruit, it's implicitly that there's, it's a known problem. It's an, uh, the solution is pretty well understood. And the impact is also pretty well understood. And you have confident in it having that impact and the cost is low. So it's, it's very attractive. Like, however, you can easily fill your entire year doing just low hanging fruit and you look back at the end of the year and you say, what did we do? And you will not have meaningfully moved the business forward. Um, you know, these are types of things like fixing a login screen, changing some copy, moving a button, like again, small, low cost, easily understood. And you can, they get even bigger than that, but like their, their low impact is the problem. That's the fundamental problem. And so I, like to use this big rocks framework basically the way it goes the analogy is you have a jar your jar is your resources in your company and you uh want to put in a bunch of big rocks and some sand and obviously we all know that if you put the sand in first you won't have enough space for the rocks 
And so the key is you put the rocks in first and you, whatever excess capacity, whatever excess resources you have, you can fill it up with whatever the sand, you know, will allow the amount of sand to go in. But most often the case, people put the, the sand in first. I mean, they got a thumpy year and maybe they have space for one rock or maybe probably not. But if you're very intentional about establishing those North Star metrics we talked about early on, then it becomes easy for you then to say, what are the ideally three big rocks that you need as an organization to move that metric forward, right? And people can often just break it down into sort of the drivers of that North Star metric. That's an easy way to do it. Ideally, you can do it in a way that you are thinking about the investments that might even span across multiple metrics or are just the things you want to shine a light on in that six month, 12 month period um, and say, have an outsized investment in that area for the company. So the, you know, if you do that, then, and the reason people will always say, why do you need three? I talked to a founder that is like, well, we're thinking about having six. And it's like, well, A, you need focus. Six <laughs> um, is a lot. <laughs> a lot. Uh, I don't care how big your organization is. Like, it's just, you know, it, it, it implies you're not focusing. B, it's something we said about like every employee being able to, you know, name the three big rocks and be able to get excited by them. You won't have that recall on six. I guarantee that. And then the third is just like mind share and context or, you know, for the leadership team, can people really be juggling things at a leadership level across six different uh, investment areas, the context switching, you know, the depth you need to be effective and smart on all six. So better to put more wood behind fewer arrows, right? So I uh, firmly believe in, you know, three, maybe four rocks for, for an organization. What's so interesting about that to me is it sounds like people are also hedging on both ends, right? Either it's all sand and it's incremental and I you're not gonna be able to fire me because I it was all like it was good for someone or right. I'm going so wide with six or seven priorities. And again, like you can't be mad at me because yeah. uh, we covered all the bases, right? So it feels like a strategic problem too of what are the trade-offs and priorities. Totally. And by the way, one of the most common things I've seen is like the CEO founder, you know, they've, they've been working there so long they, and they have all the established relationships with the engineers. They'll be like sliding things in on the side, like all these little sand things. And then, and so one of the things I like to do is I go and I ask to see their JIRA board, right? The list of things that the, before I even if like- you're the, looking for the secret boards, is that why? <laughs> like the off books boards? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and then I'm like, well, is this really everything the team's working on? And normally there's like, some other things somewhere else and you at, and you look at how much capacity that's taking up again you now you're looking at like 50 percent of the team yeah i think it's a it's a big problem and i think it shows up in different ways people start to identify symptoms you know this organization is not going well and they pointed at like one thing but meanwhile this is the problem right like that they haven't had these prioritization frameworks they haven't had these kind of ways to make hard trade-off decisions yeah, and it seems to me too, after hearing you that, you know, this feels like a real prerequisite to being able to scale, which is obviously yeah. the thing that everyone wants to do, whether you're a public company or privately held. When do you think it's important to think about scale? Well, I, I actually think, and this might be heretical, I actually think it's good to not think about scale early on. And and I know there's a lot of shifting views on this in the issue right now because there was a period of valley startups where they just didn't think about scale and they worried about margin later and it worked really well but then like in the more recent era people are saying you know you got to think about margin kind of early on 
because maybe there's not a scalable business to be had here. Right. The problem with thinking about scale too early though is it just you start to artificially constrain yourself on tough trade-off decisions. And yeah, I do think so. Let me make this more tangible, specific. You know, I was at Envoy most recently, and we had a heavy operations part of our business that was all dealing with kind of supply chain and how do we build the device, how do we build the daily disposable pod, all these things, and the shipping. You know, and so there was a lot of costs in that part of the business. Meanwhile, we had a lot of coaches on staff, right? And that was there's a lot of costs in that, right? So whether the ratio was like one to 50 or one to 500 per, per member, it's still a lot of cost. And I'm still beating the drum that, Hey, we've got to like, make sure we got product market fit. As we talked about earlier, right. You've got to make sure you've got great retention as we said earlier. And then we start thinking about scale. So when I thought about my big rocks there, I intentionally told the organization, I was like, we're not going to invest in coaching efficiency and we're not going to invest in like hardware operational efficiencies when it comes to the devices and shipping and everything. But I also had a pretty strong conviction that you can optimize those things. Like whether you brought AI into the coaching, whether you brought tools for the coaches, whether you automated the shipping, automated the integration with all the different software packages when it came to the kind of manufacturing and shipping. There was clearly a lot you could do to take humans out of those parts of it. And it's, it's sort of known and well-established. So I don't think you should think about too early. Once you do hit PMF and you feel pretty confident about it, I think that's when you start. And then when you, it's important to think about how this thing can be effectively always on. I worked with uh, Gokul Radharam at, at Google, and I've always been a huge fan of his. He puts out some good content. And he talks a little bit about this, like, you know, AdWords is a great example of like an always on product. You set yeah. it and forget it. And, you know, a lot of times people build products and in order for a customer to get value out of it, they have to use it. But can you set a goal that you don't want your customers to actually have to use it? Or it's like so latent, ambient, you know, use that it's just like always on. And uh, that's not achievable for everyone. I get it. But if you set that as your goal, at least, then it'll start to expose all the holes and it'll start to expose all the places where humans are involved that you can try to tackle each one of those kind of one by one and automate that. And especially with this like new technology around generative AI, now is better time than ever to kind of automate some of that work. And uh, again, if you don't take this as an aspirational goal to be always on, then you'll never start to figure out what are the things holding you back from being a totally self-serve product. I really like that. So what do you think makes a great product manager or a product leader? Mm. So I have a rubric I, I sort of extracted from Google Twitter days that have three kind of well-established tenants, and then I have my own. So I'll start with the kind of the well-established tenants uh, in the rubric, and that includes operational leadership, people leadership, and thought leadership. And so operational, we kind of talked a little bit about, it's like you want someone who can think about keeping the trains on, running on time, executor. This is a lot of like program management experience and, you know, you're shipping stuff, you're reliable, detail-oriented, all that, all that stuff. People leadership is interesting because product leads don't often have big organizations, yeah. you know, especially if they literally just have PMs and maybe design that they're one of the smaller teams in the organization usually, but yet they have so much responsibility in my opinion. And 
the way they are supposed to be successful is through a lot of cross team collaboration and influence mm-hmm. through through that collaboration. And there's a lot of kind of consensus building that needs to happen and galvanizing and you know evangelizing the vision and getting people on board through that. So the people leadership is a lot about the kind of coordination and, and the influence through through that. The thought leadership to me is around are they visionary? Are they creative? Do they come up with really creative solutions to hard problems? Are they studying the market? Are they on top of the trends? Are they gonna gonna come up with a th- approach that you know most most others aren't gonna come up with? And so those are those again, those are sort of well established. I think you know, most of the big tech companies have a version of that in their kind of PM ladder and whatnot. The things I like to add on are number one, you need some level of vulnerability. I talked about how people leadership was important to be successful as a PM. And a lot of times what that means is that people have to have a lot of confidence and this kind of presence, if you will, to get people excited about this thing, right? And, and evangelize that vision. And that requires a level of leadership and pride in some ways. But overdone, that can mean that you have blinders on. You don't know that your product is missing its mark. You don't know that uh, you've had a big fail. And and I think especially in this day and age, in order to establish trust with the organization, you have to have that vulnerability. You have to acknowledge when you made a failure and you have to be willing to get up in front of the whole company and own it and then, and then move on and then learn from it and yeah, move on. And then the related one here is Something I talk about is called equanimity. I think uh, the Asana co-founders used to talk about this a little bit. It's actually a concept that comes from like India and Hindu culture. Uh, it's in the Bhagavad Gita. Like they, this idea of decoupling passion from attachment. Right. So again, a really good product manager will just be super passionate about what they're doing and be very excited about it, and it'll be sort of embodied in their work. But sometimes, again, that leads to some blinders that they don't realize that this product is actually a failure and they need to have, they need to be sort of so committed and, and passionate about it, but they also need to decouple themselves such that they don't sort of go off the cliff with this product. Um, and so try not to take anything too personally and you kind of want to see examples of that because a lot of times in organizations, we see people playing this kind of blame game, like I'm the victim. Yeah. There's the villain. There's the hero, and 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 kind of Hollywood drama triangle. But you want to make sure that they have some awareness about who they are, their strengths, weaknesses, their vulnerability, but also like they're able to decouple themselves and remove themselves from this environment to some degree. Yeah, I really like that. What do you wish that CEOs, senior executives, boards knew about what it takes to build a really great product? It's a little bit of a corollary to what makes a good leader. Like what, what on the flip side of it could help? I guess the, you know, reiterating one of the previous points, like, you know, a lot of times CEOs, founders, boards will say this, this organization is too slow and cranking stuff out. It's like a, I'm, I'm doing some really formal advising right now with a group called Techquity. And yeah, a lot of times they'll, they'll present this problem to us saying, Hey, there's not enough throughput in this engineering team. And again, it, it does come back to some of the stuff I said earlier around like not having the right prioritization frameworks, not having the right software development process, and they're, sne- they're sneaking in requests on the side. So it's like you're only getting 30% out of your team of what they should be because they're doing a bunch of stuff that's not a good priority. The other thing is that like to establish really good product values 
and to establish what I would call like delight, right? Delight in your product. It's just requires a, a less measurable amount of investment. And, you know, I think a lot of times we want everything to be so ROI oriented. Like if I make this investment, this is what I'm going to get out of it. And I think there just needs to be a little bit of trust on this side of things of like, do you want this product to be delightful? Apple, you know, the way Apple has created so much delight among their products and the way it leads to kind of loyalty in irrational ways, that level of investment again is less measurable, <laughs> but it's so critical. And so you got to have a little bit of kind of patience and trust that your team is hopefully investing in those things and give them the freedom to do that. A little magic goes a long way, certainly. Exactly. Before we get to our last question, are there any other lessons that you have picked up along the way that you wanted to share or anything else that you'd like to tell us? Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess the thing, like I, I would just encourage folks to just be, you know, really thoughtful about their job transitions, you know, as they make them uh, something I've gone back and evaluated obviously hindsight 2020 the best uh, the best decisions i made first of all are ones where i wasn't sort of opportunistically hopping from one thing to the next and i was sort of intentional about taking some time to and creating space to be able to evaluate the next thing um, but also you know think about the coefficients of impact i like to say and which ones matter to you i think everyone is super motivated by impact and having impact in some way but different people care about, again, different coefficients on that. So some might care a lot about the societal impact. You might care about the number of people your product is touching. You might care a lot about the uh, role you have in that organization. And there's different weights, right? So like, what is your weight at any given time? And I, and I do believe those weights evolve, but just being honest, I guess, with yourself on those coefficients and then, and then taking the time to evaluate your opportunity ahead of you against those coefficients because i think we're often just basing it on the last role we had and we're either like over pivoting because we didn't have a great experience and like we're yep. swinging the pendulum too far to the other side or we had a good thing going and we kind of were looking for something similar and you're kind of like but you as an individual will evolve and what matters to you and so making sure that like you're staying true to to those coefficients all along i really love that so just the last question for you, what do you think that high performance companies do differently from the run of the mill company? Yeah. I mean, I think some good, some bad, right. But there, but I do think that all leads to the high performance companies are, you know, will lead to a much more buttoned up, well executed, well thought out plan through the year. Um, I, you know, the big one comes to mind is kind of risk tolerance is guiding a lot of the decisions at a at a high performance company um, their risk tolerance ends up being low but they have to figure out a way to balance that with still keeping growth growing at a meaningful clip and so you know the risk tolerance being low means that there's like just a ton of checks and balances a lot of reviews a lot of stakeholder input a lot of staying away from, you know, things that could get them into bad situations, legal risk, privacy risk, all that stuff, but still balancing that with investments that have really good returns and, and allow for growth. And so that, you know, I think the other big piece here is around the people, right? Like how do you make sure you're continuing to bring in the people that are going to push this, 
push the boundary and still challenge assumptions and, and be able to operate within kind of a low risk environment and drive the innovation. And I think a lot of times you'll see indicators of a company going from high performance to kind of medium or low performance is when you start to see the quality of those leaders kind of degrade over time. Mm-hmm. And you can start to take stock, like where are all those high quality leaders going? And and then, I, you know, I think the other big piece is like this, just mapping things out with some level of foresight, meaning like you need to have a roadmap that goes beyond two, three months and having it go out at least six, nine months, ideally 12, you know, the fidelity is going to be much lower in the sort of nine to 12 months period, but at least mapping it out to me indicates that like, A, you've got buy-in from all the stakeholders that matter that this is what you're going to do. B, you're sort of thought, you're taking the time to be thoughtful enough about what are the drivers of the business and how we're going to balance all those. And then C, you can start to set expectations with your customers and they start to be able to rely on you in ways that mean that they can bet more money on you. And then, you know, I think you're able to start doing a lot of good staffing decisions and you're not just like responsibly reacting and trying to play the catch up, you know, every sort you know, you're not three, six months behind where you need to be on a staffing front. And so that's a level of performance that you're going to be able to achieve because you're like way out ahead and what you unknowing what you need. And be able to just like have people come in and be instantly sort of productive in a way that you know you just don't see in early stage companies because they're often like looking out one to two months at best. Well, Jeet, this has been so great. Thank you so much for joining us. You are always so thoughtful and insightful. So really appreciate you uh, letting me pepper you with questions today. Super fun. Uh, you intimidated me early on with the the threat of the peppering, but it was, <laughs> it was I'm glad you brought it. Well, what are old friends for if not <laughs> if not to keep you on your toes? Thank you. Thanks for joining us here at Good Revenue. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review, follow the show, or share it with a friend. We're a new show, so it really helps other listeners find us. And if you have feedback, comments, or suggestions for episodes or guests, please reach out to us. You can find our information in the show notes. This show was produced with the help of RPS Audio, experts in sound and podcast production.